0: My name is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I am honored and thrilled and humbled to have Mitzi Perdue join me today. She is an author, speaker, and businesswoman. She's the founder of Saras Farms, the second generation family-owned commercial and agriculture real estate investment company that has owned rice fields, commercial and residential real estate, and today, the family vineyards sell wine grapes to wineries such as Modavi, Boggle and toasted head. Her talk, Timeless Secrets of Success, comes from observing how her father, the co founder of the Sheraton hotel chain, and her late husband, Frank Perdue, each built their companies from no employees to more than 20,000. She is so lovely, and I'm so honored to have her. Welcome to the show, Mitzi.
1: Oh, I, I couldn't be more pleased to be with you, Tiffany.
0: Well, we are going to start out with something I call bullish and bearish, and it's nothing too painful. A little bit of fun. Bullish is you're for it. Bearish is you're against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Buckle up. First one, bullish or bearish? Space travel. Bullish. Oh, I didn't think you'd say that. Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. And I I feel like then there needs to be a Sheraton wherever we go. Good idea. Very good idea. Like the way you think. Yep. Okay. Next. Indoor farming. Uh,
1: Mildly bearish, mildly, mildly bullish.
0: Okay. I'll take that and we'll dig into that because I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about how technology has changed farming so much. And then the next one is a little fun and it sort of segues into why I'm going to ask you this question. But the next one is sewing face masks.
1: As bullish as you can get. There you
0: go. All right. So a little fun story. Mitzi, why don't you share why I asked you that question about
1: uh, sewing face masks? Okay, everyone, here's the inside stuff. I was telling (laughs) Tiffany that my favorite thing to do while listening to or watching podcasts is to sew face masks. And since COVID-19 began, I believe I've sewn more than 400. And you might wonder, what do you do with 400 face masks? Well, I think their highest and best use is My late husband's company, Purdue Farms, employs 22,000 people, and I've given away hundreds of them, like to all the administrative assistants, to the management committee, to the Purdue Women's Group. And then on top of that, I give it to charities like uh, charities that not everybody's making face masks for, for example, uh, hospice or food banks.
0: Well, I think it just shows, right, that It's all the little things we can do that can make a
1: difference. I I really believe that's true because the thank you letters that I get for an unexpected gift. I mean, imagine that you're the wife of a plant manager and you probably aren't expecting to be recognized because you're not the person who's drawing the paycheck. But I know that you contribute a lot to the company. So that's why I have made a face mask for you.
0: Well, and I think that that's just something that, not many people think past the line of sight of the person who actually works for the company, and you've had a front row seat with your with your father and your late husband uh, on how businesses are built and grown and run. And from the human side, because while you weren't in those two positions, right, you were just like that wife of (laughs) that person who worked for, you know, your late husband, right? So at the end of the day, it's the human side of business.
1: But I got to watch, as you mentioned in your introduction, I had the privilege of watching two extraordinarily successful titans of business and how they did it. And if you had asked either of them how they did it, both of them would have told you. And I know this because I've heard them say it, that it's the employees at every level that make a company a success. And that, of course, raises the question, how do you get the employees to be willing and eager to go the extra mile? And both men would have given the same answer to that also, which is loyalty is a two-way street. People crave appreciation, so give them appreciation. Uh, Go the extra mile for them. Yeah, and I think loyalty
0: is something that is hard to come by. You know, many people say, I I do it for the paycheck. I I happen to be really blessed. I love my job. I say all the time, I have a dream job. I mean, I couldn't have created something better for myself. So I am loyal to, it's not a paycheck for me. I mean, I'm happy I get a paycheck today, of course, but it it is so
1: much more than that for me. Well, that puts you in the very lucky one third in America. And this is according to Gallup. Gallup is very interested, this is the polling organization. They're very interested in how people engage with their companies and they've done surveys. I think it's in 90 different countries and they've they've got millions and millions of data points of how engaged somebody is with their work. And that means how much they're eager to go to work, how much they're willing to do extra for their job. And in the United States, one third of people love their jobs or engaged with their jobs, two thirds neutral or actively hate it. So congratulations to being in the in the top one third. Yeah. And so what do
0: you think? You know, having such a an incredible view of how those two titans of business created an environment where they had people who were really loyalty loyal to the business and the company. What do What do you think? was the cultural DNA that they might've both shared?
1: Okay, I think I know the answer because, oh, having an inquiring mind, I was always asking my father and I was forever asking Frank, how did you do it? Why are you doing this or that? And I think I can capsulize what my, what my father's attitude was by, by telling you a quick story of what he would do whenever he bought a new hotel. And he had 400 at the time of his death, but he said he did some version of what I'm about to describe with every hotel he ever got. And the way it started out, let's say he started during the Great Depression, early 1930s, and the hotels that were set for sale then were generally going bankrupt. Nobody had figured out how to make money on hotels when the whole country was in effect going bankrupt. So... When he took over a hotel, the first thing he'd do would be to invite all the people who worked for the hotel to come into the hotel's ballroom. And that might mean 400 employees. And father knew ahead of time that every one of them was probably worried sick, that they're going to lose their job and that father would be hiring his nephews and uncles and best friends to take their jobs or, or that he'd be there to, quote, clean house. That is, you know, get rid of the dead wood and bring in new people. Father didn't take that attitude. He said when he stood up in front of his new employees and he's gazing out over hundreds and hundreds of people who are worried and demoralized, he told me the first words out of his mouth were, I want every one of you to keep your jobs. And then he'd explain why. He'd say, you know your job better than anybody else in the world. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you'll see in a matter of months, this hotel is going to be the best served, the most popular, the most financially stable hotel in the whole city. And we're going to be an example to the rest of the city that even in tough times, things can turn around. Well, that's part one of the story, but there's a part two of the story. Well, first of all, imagine how encouraged the employees are knowing that they're not going to be in the bread line the next day. But Father told me that what he had just told his employees, those are words and they're good, but they weren't enough. So how did he show that he really meant it? He told me with every hotel he ever bought, you know, generally they'd be run down and need refurbishing. But Right after he gave a talk, you know, the talk, welcoming people to being part of the Sheraton family, the people who worked there would see just cavalcades of plumbers, electricians, decorators coming in to spruce up the hotel. But they were probably astonished to discover that those plumbers, electricians, decorators, and so on, weren't going first to the areas that the paying public would see. No, Father made sure that the first money he ever spent on any hotel he ever bought were in the areas that the public would never see. It would be like the employee dining room, the employee kitchens, the employee uh, like showers and lockers. Uh, And he, so, you know, I'm asking him, why, why did you put money there when, you know, when the hotel really needs paying customers? And he said, that was a way of communicating to the employees, how important they were to him.
0: And I believe that the fastest way to get your customers to love your brand is to get your employees to love
1: their job. And somehow in the 1930s, father knew that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he told me that a leader's job is to give the, the employee a better vision of himself or herself with the idea that. You know, when you come to work, you're not just making beds or waiting table or tending bar. No, you're building the best hotel in the city. You're part of a team that's going to turn things around. And isn't that a better vision of yourself to have than, than what you might have if you had just stood up there and said, shape up or you're fired? Well,
0: if what's interesting, right, is I think in the hospitality business, you know, you've seen that that's where I think you see the the best of that entire story you just gave, right because people are leaving their homes the comfort of their homes and they're going to stay somewhere and they want to feel kind of like it's a temporary home you know what I mean yeah. like that it's it's welcoming and it's safe and it's clean and people are happy and you know I mean you don't want to go home to a place that's dirty and angry and you know, all those things right you wanna and so you know someone like me i i I traveled 375,000 miles last year. I'm, Good Lord. I'm an, I know I'm an ambassador elite as part of the Sheraton Marriott program. Like I'm as high as you can go I, for life. I am right. Because wow. that, that's wow. that's my brand of choice, but it, but it's also because of the way they treat me.
1: Yeah. I think father had a long shadow. He was born in 1897 and wow. we sold the, the hotel on his death, which I mean, we sold it in 1968 so I'm not personally connected with the Sheraton Hotels, but I sure grew up in them. And I do think that his attitude has carried down through the years. Yay.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't be more happy, you know, and, and even if you look at the competing brands, right? whether it's a Hilton or a Ritz-Carlton or Four Seasons, very consistent with those that started it. It was about excellence and people and employees and caring and all of those things. So I, I think that's, that's amazing. Uh, so now let me pivot over to your husband, because I think Purdue Farms is another great example of you know, leadership and people, because uh, it's also a very people-intensive business. And, and how, you know, how did that shape itself uh, over time?
1: Well, I've, I've sometimes almost felt superstitious because the stories are so parallel. You know, If I were writing a novel, I'm not sure I'd believe it, but I've lived it, so I know it's true. Both my father... And my husband, my late husband, uh, were remarkably people, people, people. And as far as I can tell, Frank had just, I mean, he had loads of goals, but one of his major ones was the same one that my father had, showing the employees how important they were. And there was a quote, this comes from a psychiatrist from, oh, 120 years ago. But William James once said, and Frank endorsed this idea, The deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And the number of things that Frank did to show that the people who worked with him were important to him, and I'll I'll share one with you because I played a role in it. We had a goal of entertaining every single person who worked for the company in our home for dinner. And I suggested that to Frank right at the beginning of our marriage in 1988. And the reason I suggested it is growing up in the hospitality industry, I, you know, I, it's in my DNA that I just think that getting people together and having a good time is a wonderful thing. Well, Frank initially resisted the idea because he told me at that time they employed 16,000 people. And you know, that's just way, 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 way too many. But I sort of pr- pretended that I didn't understand that he was telling me no. And I said, let's have them in groups of 100 at a time. And he said, no, that's way too many. And I said, you know, this is August. I bet you by the end of September, we could put it together. And he said, no, that's way too soon. But gradually he came around and and liked the idea because it was a very, how about unique and personal way of showing appreciation to the people who worked for him or he would have said worked with him. And for the next 17 years until his passing, pretty often three times a month would have groups of people a hundred at a time and would have them in groups of people who knew each other, because we knew that it might be kind of, I don't know, unnerving to have dinner at the big boss's house. If you're, I don't know, if you're with your friends, it's going to be a lot easier. And so would have them like the accountants or the truckers or the veterinarians or the administrative assistants would have them in groups who know, who knew each other. And we would have a great big buffet dinner. And at this buffet table, it was, I'm gonna guess it might it might have been 15 feet long and several people would be serving, but Frank would stand behind the buffet table with the servers and Frank Perdue would wait on his employees. And you know how many heads of Fortune 500 size companies would wait on their employees and, and that isn't even the end of the story. Uh, while, while his guests, his employees were there, usually 100 at a time, you know, he'd make sure that he talked with every single person, making each person feel important. And then at the end of the evening, he'd tell them, you know, he'd get up in front of everybody and he'd tell what was going on in the company, you know, what was going wonderfully, what was a real hair-raising problem. Uh, he'd, he'd just tell it, you know, in the most transparent way. And then he'd take questions from anybody. And then finally, at the end of the evening, in one way or another, he'd use these words. I mean, it it would be different words, but it will always be the same thought. He'd tell them, I know the company wouldn't be what it is today without each of you. Thank you. And, you know, what must it mean to an employee to be entertained for dinner at the big boss's house and to be personally thanked?
0: Well, I think it goes a long way. And I think there's such, well, let me say this two ways. I think there was a tremendous lack of empathy, my opinion, for everybody listening, my opinion, Uh, a lack of empathy at the leadership level in so many ways. I think this pandemic has really, uh, in a good way, right, flipped that on its head. And you see a lot more empathy and a lot more connection and a lot more, Uh, of those little simple things that leaders and executives can do to make people who are, you know, back then it, it wasn't dealing with a pandemic right right now everybody's anxiety level and stress levels. And do I, am I going to keep my job? And, you know, the essential workers, especially, you know, in, in a lot of the plants like Purdue has right where we've had outbreaks and, you know, it's, it's really stress, stressing people out. And so I think that connection to, to executives and leaders is really critical right now. So I, I hope, I'm hopeful that it maintains itself. You know, through this, that we don't forget what we've all gone through right now. Because you know, going back to what you said, the bread lines back then. It was sort of this. Everybody was very grateful to have a job. And here, a hundred years later, right? It's will this be what makes this generation more grateful for all the things that we have, and leaders for the people who are showing up every day and continuing to work.
1: Well, the amount of gratitude I feel for. Like, I don't know, the checkout person at the supermarket or the mailman or woman. Uh, You know, what would my life be without them? I'm so grateful. I hardly know what to do with myself.
0: You make masks.
1: You make masks. Well, yes. Oh, I, I, I left out. I made masks for our entire local post office. How
0: amazing is that? So I feel like I'm not a sewer. I don't think any mask I would make would ever be worn. <laughs> However, you know, I think that's that. What a great little thing! I think if if you like to sew and you're listening to this, like make it for your postal worker. You know, tell them thank you and uh, yeah, be
1: kind. I know because they tell me that it just means the world to them. You know, they they actually the period when I made masks for the entire local post office. That was a time I think we might be talking March. Uh, where it was hard to get masks. And so it really made a difference to them. But they also told me that it meant a lot that, you know, just an ordinary civilian took the trouble to notice that they needed these things. Because like, I mean, I think everybody knows that the hospitals needed masks, but it it seemed to mean a whole lot to our local post office that a civilian, (laughs) I mean, I'm using the word wrong. Well, just a a member of the community of, cared enough to sew vast numbers of masks for them.
0: Well, but I think that goes back to what I was just saying, right? I feel like people are much more aware, empathetic, kind, generous, understanding. Um, I'm going to go with that.
1: Okay, <laughs> right? and I'm going to pray that that what you said, that it lasts. I mean, dear yes. heaven, let it last because, oh, appreciating each other, which goes back to To the quote that that Frank endorsed, the greatest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And, yeah, I I almost feel that anything that we can do to show people that we appreciate them is a great thing to do.
0: Well, and and I think the the examples and the stories that you gave about uh, both your uh, late father and late husband, that it was all based in gratitude. Yeah. And, and and I think that that just lends itself. How you and I got connected uh, was Michael Victor Hansen, who wrote the book Chicken Soup for the Soul, and uh, you've got another book uh, book coming a uh, book that's out, How to Keep Up in Down Times. And and let me let me give you an opportunity to talk about what compelled you to write the book and what you think uh, the value of it is.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wrote the book. It's co-authored with Mark Victor Hansen. And his stepson Preston Weeks, and we started working on this book in early February, and we finished it in three weeks. And I'm, you know, the best writing was from Mark Victor Hansen, but I did play a role that I think counts, which is, we we'd been friends because I founded an organization called Win This Fight, which is combating human trafficking. Well, Mark Victor Hansen hates human trafficking as as. I mean, he's not unique in that, but we kind of bonded over uh, wanting to do something about it. And we we became friends and would, would talk lots. But then in early February, when it became so clear that really bad things were coming our way with the pandemic, I suggested to him, Mark, you're one of the most inspirational people on the planet. You've sold half a billion books giving people <laughs> advice. And... I have, I have almost 40 years of experience as a science writer and a health writer. What if we put together your, your inspirational knowledge and my health writing knowledge? And we had a very short book. It would be 100 pages long. It would be 40 tips, each of which would be two pages long, which would give people ways of coping with what we were pretty sure was coming our way, namely stress, anxiety, really down times. Well, Mark endorsed the idea, and we were able to write it actually with along with his stepson in three weeks. And, and then something so special about this book, we didn't write it to make money. A book that size and by somebody as eminent as Mark, uh, it should be a $20 book. The least expensive book that Amazon would let us put up that was a hundred pages long, and the size that it was, was $4.58. That's the price we're charging for it. And the reason we wanted it to be so low is we wanted it to help everybody because these are things that can turn people's lives around. I get fan letters from people telling me, well, like one that came today, actually it was handwritten. I'm not sure how the woman got my address, but she she wrote that as she was going through it, she was marking pages to reread. And then she said, you know what? I've marked every page. Or there's a woman from Taiwan whom I've never met. I don't know who she is. She wrote me and told me that she had bought one copy, and then she liked it so much that she wanted to help her friends. She bought 200 copies, and then she wanted to have, uh, she wanted to know if she bought 1,000 copies for her string of stores, if Amazon would give her a break. I mean, is that cool or what? I mean, people. I'm, what I'm really saying is that I'm so glad I wrote it because people have been getting a lot out of it.
0: Well, I think that's the whole point of it, right? I, I think people right now are looking for something to help guide them through. I think it's at least in my lifetime. I'm 54, so I haven't been through anything like this—not a World War One or World War Two. You know what I mean? It's so, uh, or or. Uh, Spanish flu or anything like that. And so this for me is my big life experience of something like this. And what's been fascinating to me is to watch how people deal with it so differently, like mental health has become a top conversation, empathy and gratitude and, you know, just reaching out and, and asking people how they're doing and then listening, you know, and listening with an empathetic ear. I think it's a, it's a
1: really amazing time. Well, the things you just mentioned are a big part of the book. Like the mental health thing. I can give a quick tip to everybody that will make people feel better. Let's go. <laughs> I've coined this. Maybe somebody else uses the word too, but I call it pandemic brain. Where over and over again, I'm aware of people who think that they're about to get Alzheimer's or that they're getting Alzheimer's because they can't remember their best friend's name. They can't remember a movie star. They go charging into a room to pick up something and they can't remember what they went there for. Or just recently, I was on a phone call with a certified public accountant who couldn't divide 50 into a million. We were on a conference call and she was embarrassed out of her mind because this would be the most interest, easy thing in the world for her to do normally. So all these people are thinking they're getting Alzheimer's and I'm here to say, (laughs) you aren't. It's almost vanishingly small the chances that those indicate you're getting Alzheimer's because, and this is me speaking as a science writer, when you're under stress, the hormones that just course through your body make you as if you were maybe in the the savannas of Africa 10,000 years ago being chased by a lion. When you're being chased by a lion, all the energy of your body goes into fight or flight. And it doesn't go into, uh, are we still here, by the way? We are. Oh, because my screen with just went blank. Nope. we are you still
0: th- here, Mitzi. We
1: are still here. I, we're, we're waiting for the end of this. Go. <laughs> okay, that was <laughs> called the dramatic pause. <laughs> no, but, but to continue, there you are, you know, racing against being eaten by a lion. You're not going to be figuring out your, I don't know, your best friend's name, what happens is when all the stress hormones, which are going through our bodies right now, when when they're flooding our bodies, which they are, frankly, continuously, because we're worried about jobs, we're worried about health, we're worried about politics, everything, that means that the higher brain functions, like memory, like logic, all the higher brain functions sort of restate down, and you feel as if you're getting Alzheimer's, but in fact, you're not, you're just having the most common experience possible. Your brain is dealing with stress. And that's, so that's one tip. You're probably not getting Alzheimer's just because you can't remember a movie star's name. But another piece of advice which follows that is it's almost a medical necessity. And I've got dozens of doctors who will agree with this, it's almost a medical necessity that you give yourself at least an hour of respite, something where you're so involved that you're not thinking of all the things that were that worry you. And some people tell me watching a James Bond movie does it for them. Other people, and I'm one of them, like watching YouTube videos of of animals being rescued or Other people like playing with their grandchildren or reading a good book or listening to fabulous music or just talking with friends on the phone. But find something, at least an hour a day, where you give your brain time to restore itself because you're not worrying about how I'm going to pay the bills or am I going to keep my job or is the country going to go down in flames?
0: Well, Mitzi, I think that I couldn't have ended our time together any better way. So I'm going to challenge everybody who's listening to this Uh, we take a half hour after you listen to this podcast and do any of the above that Mitzi said, call a friend, sew some masks, listen to music, watch animals get rescued on YouTube, (laughs) something, (laughs) anything that will make you smile and feel uh, grateful for, you know, the life that we all have. So Mitzi, thank you so much for spending time with us today on the what's next podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your fantastic stories and learning more about you and everything that you've done.
1: Well, for me, it was pure joy. And by the way, if people would like free chapters, go to com, and you don't even have to sign up for anything. They're on the website. And, it, and it's M-I-T-Z-I.
0: Yep, com. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much, Mitzi. Thank you everybody for listening and have a great day. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mitzi as much as I did. What a fantastic set of stories about her late father and her late husband and the consistency between the way that they ran their businesses full of gratitude made all their employees know their value and their value to not only the business but to the people that they served. i thought it was a fantastic story for this time we're in right now please don't forget to subscribe leave some feedback on the podcast i appreciate you spending time with us today on the what's next podcast enjoy the rest of your day